Hey, good morning. Everyone doing okay? Everyone's good? Yeah? All the parents are tired, super worn out, right? Hope everyone was good. Uh, Santa brought you everything you wanted, so good to see you. Glad you guys are here. So um, if you're new to the church or if you've never been here, a couple of things that we really value here at the church, uh, value a lot of things, but two very prominent things we value is we teach verse by verse through the Bible. So that's pretty much all I do. Very, very, very rarely do I take a break from teaching through whole books of the Bible. We just went through First and Second Thessalonians. We're about to go through First Corinthians. Uh, we went through Romans. We're doing a lot of Paul's stuff recently. Uh, we just went through Romans recently. And I don't know what we're gonna do after First Corinthians, but uh, that'll take us four or five months. So work through that. We'll get back into that. Uh, I'll start First Corinthians next week, and that'll be fun. Cool way to kind of kick off the new year, but it fell perfectly to where we get to talk about something else that we value here at the church big time, which is communion. Uh, it says prayer and communion. I probably should have had them do that opposite. I'm gonna talk about communion about 90% of this, very, very briefly about prayer, because we have a prayer night coming up. But uh, communion is a big deal. Something that we do at all four services at this church on the weekend, our other campuses do it. We do it at our worship nights. There has not been a time where we have gathered together as a church um, even for events that we have not given the opportunity to take communion. It's just something very, very serious to us. And so we'll have the opportunity at the end of service. I'll end a little early. And, um, you know, we're about half capacity today, so you got a little bit more room to move around. It won't take you as long to get communion. And I wanna really encourage you today to, um, to just really think about what we're doing. And so I'm gonna teach a lesson on it, different interpretations of communion, how other churches may do it, um, talk about the biblical story of why we even take communion at all. And so I will read a little bit, but I'm not gonna read a ton from the Bible today. I'm gonna read a little snippet from Luke chapter 22, but next week we'll get back to expository teaching. And, um, but again, I think it's a good opportunity for you to learn a little bit about communion. I always talk about it briefly at the, at the end of service, but rarely do I get to go into a big lesson about it. So everyone's good, right? We have, I'm telling you, I'm tired too, it's cool. It's perfectly fine. Uh, my kids can never wake up early ever throughout the school year or anything, but on Christmas day, it's like six o'clock, you know, and you're just about touching that rim sleep and a little hand, right, dad? So um, we have this like, I don't know if it's a Christmas tradition, I just really enjoy it. The kids will sit there and I always get a cup of tea because I'm old and um, I'll sit down and we'll like watch them open up the gifts and I collect vinyl, I have a lot of records. And if you remember if those older people in the room that this is Christmas 80s record, right? Like Sting and Bruce Springsteen and all that stuff on it and uh, the Ronettes are on it and all that stuff. And anyway, so my big thing is listening to Bruce Springsteen do Santa Claus is Coming to Town. It's like a, such a great rendition. My kids are sitting there in the part when Bruce Springsteen asked the one guy in the band, he's like, you've been good, so Santa will get you a new saxophone. And my kids are like, who in the heck plays the saxophone anymore? I'm like, nobody. But... In Bruce Springsteen's day, they did, right? That was actually a cool thing to do. So, um, all right, none of that has any bearing on what we're gonna talk about. I just wanna tell you what my Christmas morning looked like. So, you should've got a notes handout when you came in. It has everything I'm gonna say in there. Everything will be on the screens. If you're new to the church, we have a really cool app. If you just download the Experience Community app, all the notes and, and, and scripture is all on there under sermon notes, which is really, really convenient. So, let me pray. We'll talk about communion. Maybe you learned something you didn't know about communion and um, we'll have the opportunity to take communion today, all right? So let me pray, and we will dive into it. Father, Lord, I love you. Uh, God, I thank you so much, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity to be in this room this morning. God, this is my family, 
And I, I just appreciate the fact that we get to come in here, God, that we get to spend some time with each other. And of course, God, that we get to spend some time with you. Lord, I pray that everything we talk about today, that it honors you, God, that it educates us a little bit more. God, that we grow as a result of it. And Lord, um, that, that you're blessed by it as well. God, we pray for every church in our city. We pray for all of our different campuses, God. We pray for um, our great nonprofits that we work with, specifically Endure Athletics, that we're working with this month, God. And um, we just pray that we can be your hands and feet, God, and honor you in all we do, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. And we pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me read something to you. I'll explain it a little bit, and we'll go into kind of the, the ins and outs of communion, all right? It says in Luke chapter 22, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, if you are unfamiliar with what's going on in this scene, right? Right before this scene took place, Jesus had got a couple of his disciples, John and Peter, to go find them a place that they could rent and the 13 of them could have the Last Supper traditional meal together, right? Now, what started off to make this a big deal, and of course, not too long after this event, this scene, Jesus would be unlawfully arrested and crucified on the cross. So Jesus knew this was the last meal he was going to have with his friends on this side of heaven. The next time he would sit down with these men, right, and have this kind of supper would be the great banquet that we will celebrate in heaven. So he sits down and they're going to have the last supper, which is actually they thought a day earlier than what the traditional Passover meal would have taken place, right? So if you don't know anything about Passover, Passover was, was a huge Jewish celebration. Every Jew would have observed this. They would have known everything about this. And it was a reminder of the, the wonderful things God had done from them in the past, specifically their liberation from Egypt during the Exodus. That's what the book of Exodus is about, right? The liberation of the Jews from Egypt. And so the meal began with a cup of wine. And this is really, really neat. This is a really cool thing that we can easily miss if we don't pay attention to the scripture. Traditionally in a Passover meal, the host would take a cup of wine, he would bless it, right? Thank God for everything he'd done. And he would give it to an honored guest. He would choose an honored guest. Jesus does not do it this way. Jesus blesses the wine and he says, share it, right? It's for all of you. The reason that is important is what we learn is that anyone who sits down at the table with Christ is an honored guest. No one is above anyone else. We are all honored guests at the table with Christ. That's why he says, all of you. This cup is for every single one of you. So the cup was highly symbolic. So the disciples drinking from Christ's cup not just showed that we are all honored guests of Jesus, but that we should be united and that we should be looking forward to our Savior's return. 
So the Last Supper was, was a looking forward to several things. For them in that moment, it was looking forward to the crucifixion. It was looking forward to what Jesus was going to do, right? To be the atonement, to be the payment for humanity's sins. It was looking forward to that, right? Forgiveness and grace and mercy. It was also a looking forward to the time when all of us together, right, will feast with Jesus Christ in heaven. When this life is passed and we get to celebrate and sit down and eat and laugh and fellowship, not only with each other, but with God himself. It is a looking forward to that. So about the Passover, the big things that we talk about are the unleavened bread and the wine. There was more at this Passover, right, at this, at this communion, but, but this is what we talk, talk about. So when people would celebrate the Passover, they would talk about the Exodus, they would quiz each other. I know, that, I know that that's what you guys do as a family when you get together, quiz each other about the Bible, do some Bible quizzing before you eat dinner, right? So, so they would quiz each other about the Exodus, they would sing different Psalms, they would pray for the food, and then of course they would eat. And typically it would be the dad of the family that would kind of be like the MC of this Passover festival. So that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was kind of taking on the role of, of dad. Even though some of these men were, were quite a bit older than him, he was the guy and he was sitting there and he was kind of doing these things. And so what Jesus did though, is he made some very startling changes to this tradition that these guys that he's sitting with had been celebrating their entire lives. The first thing that he changes the tradition on is the meaning of the unleavened bread. Now, the bread that they would eat at Passover reminded them of when the Jews left Egypt, they didn't have time to put uh, yeast in the bread to make it rise. They had to get out of there in a hurry. And so the Bible commanded the Jews to make unleavened bread for Passover because it reminded them that when we left Egypt, we didn't have a lot of time. And it reminded them of the past. Jesus takes the bread and then he looks at them and he says, take this, this is my body, and now do this in a remembrance of me. What Jesus was saying is no longer does the bread symbolize the, the liberation from Egypt. Now the bread symbolizes that through my body being broken on the cross, we are liberated from sin. That's what he was saying. It was changing what the bread represented. Now it was about his body. And then it says in the same way he took the wine. Now, in this, in, in, during the Passover meals, uh, they would drink four glasses of wine. They would drink four cups of wine, and they would do it in different intervals. They didn't just like knock it all back at once, right? And they would sing different psalms, and they would talk about the book of Exodus. And the reason why they drank wine is wine symbolized freedom. It was sweet. It was really good. It was expensive. It was, it was, it was just a, a very pleasurable thing to have. And so it symbolized freedom. It symbolized God bringing them out of captivity, rescuing them, redeeming them, giving them the promised land. And so Jesus took the wine and he's basically saying in verse 20, this used to be about your liberation in Egypt. Now this wine represents my blood that I'm gonna shed for you that will free you from sin, that will rescue you from eternal death, right? from separation from God. He says, now take this wine and remember me. Remember what I'm about to do for you, the cross that was coming up. So what the Last Supper was, the Last Supper was actually a new beginning. And Jeremiah chapter 31 foretold this, that there would eventually come a time where the old covenant with God would be replaced with a new 
covenant. The old covenant was literally written on stone, right? On tablets for Moses, the 10 commandments and and, and the, the Mosaic law, this promise. And then the new covenant though would not be written on stone. It would be written on the hearts of people. And that's what he was talking about. If you go back into the Old Testament, the Old Testament law was sealed and it it was confirmed with, with sacrifice and with blood, the blood of animals, circumcision, things like that. The New Testament would also be sealed, or the New Testament, the new covenant, the new promise would also be sealed with blood and sacrifice, but it would be the blood and sacrifice of Jesus that would once and for all pay for all of our sin, pay for all the the debt that we had acquired. It would redeem us, It it would restore our relationship with God, right? This new promise that Jesus was about to make. So Passover was a time of looking backwards. Communion or the Last Supper was a time of looking forward. And so now the disciples of Jesus were to look at the communion as a reminder that the only way that we can be restored, the only way that our wrongs can be righted is through Jesus Christ and what he's done. So some of you might know Christians, and there's nothing wrong with this, but some of you may know Christians who still celebrate Passover. Now again, though there's nothing wrong with this, we're not bound to that anymore. When Jesus had the Last Supper, he changed the meaning. So now Christians don't celebrate the Passover, right? The liberation from Egypt. We celebrate what Jesus did on the cross through communion, which is our liberation from sin. And we look forward for Jesus's return. That's what we do now. So here's the thing, because we're people, right? And we can never seem to agree on everything. Uh, Virtually all Christians agree that communion, the Eucharist, the Last Supper, different ways of calling it the same thing, right? Almost every single denomination, church, everyone values communion. I've got a really good friend that's that's the priest at St. Patrick's Anglican Church, uh, Father Finley. We had lunch last week, actually, and hung out a little bit. We hang out about every six, eight weeks. He's a great guy. They do it very, very differently than us. Um, I I know Baptist ministers and Church of Christ and all kinds of stuff, and, and we all agree that communion is important, but there are different interpretations of what communion actually means. And I just wanted to show you what a couple of these were because I know on your way to to church this morning, you're like, I've been thinking about transubstantiation. What is that? Well, you're in luck. I'm gonna tell you exactly what it is. The first way (laughs) that people view communion or Eucharist or the Last Supper is what's called transubstantiation. Now, if you were in here and you were raised Catholic, you have Catholic in-laws, I have Catholic in-laws, and my, my wife was raised Catholic, is they believe that the body and blood after it is, it is blessed by the priest, the bread and the wine, literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. So this is why if you ever go to a Catholic mass, the whole service is basically based around the Eucharist or the communion, and only the priest can administer this because only the priest is, is high enough, if you will, to bless this, make it the body and blood of Jesus and give it to you. Now, there's several problems with that, and I'm not trying to pick on Catholics. I, I love good Catholics. I'm not trying to... to to get into the weeds about things. But one, I don't think Jesus, when he gave the bread and wine over to the disciples, literally said, hey, I just cut this piece of me off and I just drained this. It wasn't a literal thing. It was a metaphorical thing, right? I think anyone can pretty much pick up on that. The other problem with transubstantiation is the fact that they only believe a priest can administer that. In 1 Peter, it says that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are all part of the priesthood 
which means if you're a mom and you want to do communion with your children, you're welcome to do that. You're qualified to do that. If you're a husband and you want to do communion with your wife, you have every right you know, to pray for that, and the two of you take it. If you're by yourself, right? If you have a repentant heart, if you're living for Christ, you don't have to have someone do it for you. It's a personal thing between you and Jesus, okay? But this is the first view. The second view is kind of in the middle, and they call it the Lutheran view, Luther had a couple of problems with Catholicism. Communion was one of them. And he came up with a thing called consubstantiation, which means it's not the, quite the Catholic view and it's not quite the Protestant view. It's somewhere in the middle. That the bread and the wine don't literally become the body and blood of Jesus, but, but Jesus is in there somewhere. Kind of like how a sponge holds water, but a sponge is not the water. It's, it's a little confusing, right? And that's what kind of makes it hard is the Bible doesn't really support that either. Not that it's altogether wrong to believe that, it's not a major issue, but it's kind of hard to biblically support this kind of half figurative, half literal take on it. And then that leads us to what probably the majority of us in the room believe, that it is symbolic. And this is also called the Protestant view. So in the 16th, 17th century during the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, they basically said, well, Jesus meant this as, as a metaphor. It's not literally his body, it's not literally his blood, but it is symbolic of him giving his body and shedding his blood. Now, that's not to say that the Holy Spirit is not present. The Holy Spirit is absolutely present when you take communion. It is a deeply spiritual act, right? So it's not to take away from that at all. But in essence, what the symbolic view teaches is that the bread and the wine are tangible reminders of the cross, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. What that means is this, if you get up and take communion today, the bread does not taste good. I'm just gonna tell you that on the front end. And it's not supposed to taste good. It's supposed to be bitter. Because when someone dies, that's bitter. It's not a, it's, it's, it's not a fun thing when someone is arrested, beaten and nailed to a hunk of wood. It's a very bitter experience. And so the bread, the matzah bread that you guys get here, and if you've been to our worship nights, it's even extra heightened because it's that styrofoam, right? That circular thing that they, they say is edible, but we're not sure. And you really remember how bitter the cross was when you take that. Anyways, the point is, is to take that and for your brain to be sparked that, man, I bet the crucifixion, if you would have seen that, to even imagine how, how awful that would have been to witness, that's a very bitter thing. Then when we take the wine or the juice after that, it's very, very sweet. And that tangible reminder is to remind us that the blood that Jesus shed for us, what a sweet thing that he did for us. What a beautiful thing. Like Romans says, Paul said in Romans, that even while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And it reminds us how good God is and the freedom of God and the liberation of God. That's what it does. It reminds us of these things. And we can think about this when we take communion and we can live in harmony with him. So you might've wondered this before. So if you've ever asked me this question, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry if I was a jerk about it. But during next classes, about every four or five months, we let people ask questions at the end of next class. Someone will raise their hand and they'll say, Pastor Corey, why do you guys do communion incorrectly? And I will say, well, let's talk about that. And what that means, because here's another thing that you guys wanted to talk about, the normative principle. You're thinking about that on the way to church. Most of the things that we do in church 
I shouldn't say most. A lot of things that we do in church are not necessarily biblical, they are traditional. Now, that's not to say that they are altogether wrong. Even when it comes to how we do communion, most of the ways that you're comfortable doing communion are traditional, not biblical. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a priest standing up there and everyone drinking out of the same chalice, though I don't wanna do that. Drink out of the same chalice. There's nothing wrong with him giving it to you. There's nothing wrong with us getting up and taking it ourselves. Here's the thing. We have to understand that we are not bound to anything that is not biblical. In other words, there are times when God gives us wiggle room. Let me give you an example, because you're like, oh, Corey, that's, that sounds a little shaky. Okay, let me tell you. There's a story in the Old Testament where God tells Moses to put a parameter around Mount Sinai, right? God and Moses had, had some interesting conversations. God says, okay, I want you to put a parameter of rocks, stones, around the base of Mount Sinai, and, 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 and if the people try to cross that line, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill them. So the issue is, he told Moses to put a parameter. He never told Moses where to put the parameter. Moses had the choice. God said, I just told you to put a parameter. Where you put it, Moses, that's up to you. You have some wiggle room. You can put it way down at the base. You can put it as high up as you can possibly get it without the rocks rolling down. But he gave that option to Moses. We kind of have this freedom when it comes to communion. And that's what the normative principle is. The normative principle is whatever is not prohibited by the Bible, we can use in worship services. So here's the thing, things like music style. It doesn't matter what style of music we play as long as it glorifies God and doesn't contradict the Bible. I remember when I was a student pastor, it was on a Wednesday night, a parent came up to me, he was all huffing and puffing, he was mad. We went out to his truck, he popped in a CD in the truck, and it was just like super fast, heavy metal stuff. And he goes, what do you think of that? And I was like, well, I don't know. Can I see the lyrics? What is he saying? Gives me, gives me the lyrics, CDs. It was just like, you know, a little when those still existed. And I'm looking, at, I'm looking at the lyrics and I'm like, well, it's all about God. And he goes, oh, but, but listen to it. And I'm like, it's all about God. Like, what's the problem, right? You don't like the style, but it's all about God. Like these lyrics are good. If you read these and put it to, you know, Kenny G stuff, like you'd be worshiping like crazy, right? Like this is okay. I don't know if anyone worships to that kind of thing, but you know what I'm saying. I couldn't think of anything more di diametrically opposed to metal than Kenny G. So that's the best I could do. But the point was, the, the point is not the style of singing. The point is what we're singing about, right? That's called the normative principle. Same thing when it goes to like PowerPoint, right? So it's the same thing with you having the Bible on your phone. It's still the same words. The words still have the same power. It's just not printed paper. It's on your phone. The normative principle is the Bible doesn't prohibit technology. It doesn't prohibit a different way of sharing the gospel. It just tells us to share the gospel. So we can use PowerPoint. We can use lights. We can use video as long as the scripture is not compromised. Basically, the normative principle says that the theology cannot change but how we teach the theology is always changing. Methods always change, right? Church is always going to adapt and evolve and look a little bit different. So what the Bible does is God kind of gives us some wiggle room. God says through the Bible that this is what I want people to do when they gather together. I want them to read and teach the Bible, which we do here. I want you to sing spiritual songs. 
Now, you can do it the way the Church of Christ do it with no music, or you can do it the way that we normally do it, really loud with lots of instruments. You can do it either way you want. The point is, is to sing spiritual songs. We are to pray in church, and we are to baptize and take communion, the two sacraments of baptism and communion. Now, it is clear that the Bible says we are to do these things. Where people argue is, well, how do we do those things? And then this is when people go, why do you do communion wrong? Well, if we're gonna do it exactly the way they did it in the Bible, I hope you have four hours and that you brought your crock pot because we're gonna have dinner for four hours. We're gonna drink four glasses of wine. We're gonna spend a lot of time with each other. The reason why Jesus never laid out such specific uh, directives when it comes to communion is I think God knew that one, one day we would not all be able to sit down four hours together every single time we gather and do this, right? So what the Bible does say about communion is how we approach it. There's very little instruction about how to do communion. But the one big thing the Bible tells us to do is we cannot approach communion without examining the sin in our hearts. This is a much bigger thing than just taking bread and wine. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, listen, listen to me carefully, all of you. When we approach the cross and we are knowingly doing things that put Jesus on the cross, and if we approach that cross with no remorse of that, we are in a really, really bad spot. And it says we bring judgment against ourselves because we are denying what that cross stands for. Listen, listen, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. It kind of makes me mad when I say, hey, you're welcome to take communion, and everyone starts giggling, laughing, they dart out the door, they run up there, shoot the cracker and the juice, throw it in the recycling bin, which thank you for that, but, and then they, they, they run off, and it is so flippant and so mechanical. It's not the way it's supposed to be because it makes a bigger statement about our, how we approach God in general. When we approach the cross, right, but we do things that blatantly violate why he died. It is disrespectful to Jesus. And the Bible says it brings judgment upon us. So the big rule, if you will, the big instruction, if you will, about communion is when we take the body and blood of Jesus, we have to make sure that we have repentant hearts, that we have examined our hearts and asked Jesus to forgive us of anything in there, right? anything in there that is sinful or wrong. So theology cannot change. Things like how we take communion, how we take communion in here on the weekend is vastly different than how we take it at our worship nights. At our worship nights, it's those, you know, those little bitty like cups with the styrofoam thing in it and you, you know, you just looks like the little creamer packets. It's the same spirit, right? It's the same theology, but it's a different method. And that's totally fine. The point is this though, listen, this yellow part. We need to make sure that we, 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 we don't make intimacy with God into a religious act opposed to a relational experience. We cannot just make it mechanical. Boom, boom, all right, did the bread, did the wine. Okay, let's beat the Baptist to lunch, right? That's not how it works. You need to take this seriously. We can't make it flippant, can't make it mechanical, why? The reason why is because communion is extremely important. Let me show you a couple of reasons. The first thing is, is when we take communion, we are affirming our faith in Jesus. When we take communion, we are affirming that we understand the only way that we will be saved and changed 
is through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Only through what Jesus has done for us on the cross can I be saved and changed. So when we take communion, we are to be remembering the cross, that when we eat that bitter bread, that should be very sobering for us. The God of the universe came down, robed in flesh, was spat upon and beaten and mocked and nailed to a hunk of wood for my sin. And then when we drink that wine, the sweetness of that, we think, oh, but he did it because he loved me. And his blood, because of the blood poured out for me, I have forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. That's a very big deal. And we remember just how big the cross is. We also, when we take communion, we remember the benefits of the cross or the benefits of Jesus's death. That because Jesus has died for our sins, we receive grace and freedom and hope and liberation and the promise of salvation, the promise of an eternity with our creator. When we, when we take communion, just like we are filled by the bread and wine, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit fills us, that just like the elements are in our body, we want the Holy Spirit to be in our hearts and in our minds so it can recharge us and direct us and enable us to go out into this world, right? And be the beacons of light that Jesus wants us to be. Listen, when we take communion, we are taking it as symbolism that we are united. Communion is both a personal thing and a corporate thing. And we take it to remember that we're not in this alone, that all of us collectively, we are the body of God. And we're not against the Catholics or the Baptists or the Anglicans or the Pentecostals. We are all the body of God. We may have differences on some things, but we are to be unified in our pursuit of Christ and our hope for his return. When we take communion, we are reminded that our God is personal. He's a personal savior. That Jesus is close to us right now. That he's a personal savior that, that wants to sit down and recline with us. When he sat down and had the last supper with his disciples, it wasn't like this, it wasn't like the paintings you see, right? Where they're all sitting completely at 90 degree angles, stiff, you know, and they're all just not having fun. They probably laughed. They probably told stories, right? Jesus knew that he wasn't gonna be able to do this like that until heaven. So I bet they told, told stories about things that had happened and man, can you believe Peter did that or remember that? And they would talk about stuff. They were family. That's why it says in the book of James that Jesus knocks on our heart. Look, look at what it says in James. And if we will just open up the door, it says in James that he wants to come in and eat with us. He wants to recline. He wants to sit back and talk. That's the opportunity we have. Jesus is a personal God, a personal savior. And communion reminds us of that. Here's maybe the most beautiful thing about communion. Communion now reminds us of the communion that is to come. That one day, one day, we will all sit and there will be no more cancer that takes our loved ones. There will be no more hungry children. There will be no more domestic abuse. There will be no more suicide. There will be no more pain. There will be no more of those things. And we will sit around and we will laugh and we will exchange the pain of this life for the joy of an eternity with the great host, Jesus. 
Maybe you'll get lucky and Paul sit next to you, right? Hey, I read all your books, you know, like talk with him and joke around. Get to see your loved ones from the past, the ones that knew Christ, and we're all gonna be smiling, we're gonna be laughing. So the communion now reminds us of the communion to come when we get to feast with the great host. Now here's my only slide on prayer. When we take communion, this is a really, really good opportunity for us to talk to God. Now listen, we can have casual conversations with God and you should have casual conversations with God. Often, right? You should always kind of drop in, hey, Jesus, I love you. Just, just, just thankful for everything. You should have casual conversations with God. But we must also be very intentional at times with our prayer. We talk about this quite a bit, and I'm actually gonna teach about this a little bit more at our prayer thing that we have coming up here in, in the next month or so. But, but we teach, because we base it off the Lord's Prayer, that there is, a, there is a really good way to intentionally pray and talk to God. What we teach is the first thing, and I just ripped this off the Lord's Prayer, is we should praise and thank God first when we pray. Now listen, when you get communion here in a second and you go back to your seat, I, I, I'm going to, to encourage you, actually speak when you pray. You don't have to yell it out loud, right? But speak to where you can hear yourself talk and talk to God. And the first thing that I'm gonna encourage you to do today when you pray, and maybe get in the habit of when you pray more often, is the first thing we should do is thank God. We need to put him first. Well, Corey, life is rough. You're breathing right now, correct? You didn't earn that. God is gracious to let you breathe. God is gracious to let the blood course through your veins. You're sitting in an air-conditioned building, right? In the freest nation on planet Earth. You're blessed. God's good. God's good. God, thank you for the people around me. God, thank you, Lord, that I could come into this building today. God, thank you for, for, for saving me. God, thank you for your grace and mercy. There's a million things to thank God for. We should start off our prayers with that. And then after we thank God, we need to address the sin in us. Why? Let's go back to the book of James, who is the brother of Jesus, by the way. James said that the, the prayers of a righteous person are effective. The reason we thank God first for all he's done and then we address the sin in us because what we tend to do is we tend to start asking God for everything, but if we have unrepentant sin in our hearts, the Bible says that the prayers of people who are not righteous aren't very effective. So if we are not righteous, if we have not dealt with the sin in our lives, it's hard for us to expect all of our prayers to be answered. But if we thank God and then address the sin in us by asking God to forgive us, then we can pray for the will of God and we can expect things to happen in our life. So the second thing is when you say, God, forgive me. Not just God, forgive me, I wanna turn away from evil. It's the second thing we should do. The third thing is we need to pray for other people. I have found out personally in my life that the more I pray for others, the more God blesses me. So the third thing, God, keep your hand on my wife, keep your hand on my girls, keep your hand on my church. Keep your hand on my neighbors. Keep your hand, I, man, I pray for my kids' school every single day. Lord, keep your hand on Central Magnet. Keep your hand on, on Thurman Francis. God, keep your hand on all my kids' teachers. Keep your hand on all the principals in this town. Keep your hand, I, I just pray for people. And then at the very end, tell God what you need. Tell, and if you do it this way, you have put everything in the proper perspective. Because the Bible says, right, that if we choose to be last, he'll make us first. So let's choose to put ourselves at the bottom of that list. So listen, we should pray similar to this every single day, 
But what's beautiful when we all come in here together, we hear the word of God taught, we have communion given to us. This is a very, very special occasion for us to slow down. Everyone's busy. No one works anymore, but everyone's busy. I don't understand it. Do you know that four million people quit their jobs every month in the United States? Did you know that? Anyways, that's another subject for another time. This is an opportunity for us to come in and as David said in the book of Psalms, slow down, be quiet, be still, and know that he's God. It's a good opportunity for us to meditate a little bit on God. It's a wonderful opportunity for you to talk to God. If you get your communion, you can get on your knees, you can sit down in your chair, you can lay down on the floor, I don't care, right? Get comfortable. This is your home, this is your sanctuary. This is a safe place. And it's a great opportunity for us to just take some time slow down and talk to God. The beautiful thing is, is that God has invited every single one of us to come to the table. But in order for us to come to the table properly, we must first be repentant. Not just saying, God, forgive me, but God, I don't wanna be around evil. I don't wanna partake in evil. I don't want to, to think about the things that I did and the things that I'm doing that nailed you to that cross, God. I wanna turn away from those things and we must be repentant. Listen, we must also approach communion with reverence. This is not just a mechanical, flippant thing. Communion represents the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins in the most brutal fashion, right? Because he loves us. So I know the Bible says that Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, I know that. He is a friend, he is a friend. He is also the king of the universe. And we must approach Jesus with proper respect and proper reverence. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. The Bible says that everything was created through him, by him, for him. Jesus is everything. And we need to approach him with that kind of reverence. We must also approach communion with expectancy. There is hope with communion. I expect that when I give my life to Jesus, when I address the sin in my life, when I am submissive to what God wants me to do, I expect God's gonna do amazing things in my life. I expect God's gonna use me. That's what the Bible says. So we should approach communion with expectancy. We must also approach communion with dependency. God without you, I can't do it. I can't be saved without you. I can't be the kind of dad I need to be without you. I can't be the husband I need to be without you. I can't be the pastor or, or anything. I cannot do it without you. So we must be dependent on him. We must also approach communion as an opportunity to rest. There is so much chaos in the world right now. Take five, 10 minutes and just be still. Rest, recharge, put your hope in him. Use this as an opportunity to kind of reset a little bit and communion is a wonderful time to reflect not only what Jesus has done for us, but what he wants to do with us now. That God wants to make us the salt and light of the earth. That God would wanna do that with me, with you. We have this opportunity to reflect. The bottom line is this, and this is it. We cannot afford to make our faith mechanical well, I walked into the building, check. I, I, I gave some money in the, in the offering, check, right? 
I went up and took the bread and the juice, check. It's not a relationship. It's not a relationship. It's mechanics. We also cannot approach it flippantly. Oh gosh, I got things to do. Let's hurry up, go get that. Let's, you know, okay, yeah, Jesus, you're good. Take it and run. Let's joke around a little bit. Let's, you know, let's hurry up. Let's, let's get out of here. Well, I don't even have time for it today. You got time for it. We can't make it flippant. Listen, <laughs> the God of the universe, the God of the universe, the one that created the sun that warms you up, right? The moon that gives you light at night, the stars in the sky, the, the, the ground you walk on, the cells that make you up, the God that created all those things is inviting you to sit down, to break bread with him and to talk to him. The God that created everything, that sent his only son to die for our mistakes, loves us. He hears us when we speak. He wants to be a part of our lives. How foolish, how crazy would it be to treat that flippantly? How crazy would it be to say, oh, I got things to do. You got better things to do than to sit down for a couple of minutes and talk to the creator of the universe. What do you have to do? Tell me that's more important than that. Nothing, nothing. I wanna encourage you, take some time today and sit and rest and talk to God, okay? Would you bow your heads with me, please? I'm gonna give you three invitations today, okay? The first one is, if you are in this room and maybe you struggle with your faith, you struggle with belief, maybe you have questions, maybe you're new to the faith and you believe, but you still got questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Mike is up here. He would love to talk with you. If you have any questions about God, about church, about why we do the things we do, please come up here and talk to Pastor Mike. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, your health, your job, your finances, your family, just something for you, whatever the case may be, if you need prayer for anything, let one of these people pray with you, please. And then the last thing is there's communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see a lamp on a table all the way around the room, you're welcome to go up and get the bread and the wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus. And I just wanna encourage you, take a couple of minutes and just sit, meditate, talk to God. He's listening. Father, Lord, I love you. God, I love his church more than more than I can even express in words. God, I pray, Lord, that you keep everyone in this room spiritually safe. I pray, God, that you, you, you keep them mentally safe, Lord, and physically safe, God. I pray, Lord, that as we roll into a new year, God, that we can be the salt and the light that you want us to be, Lord, that our relationship with you can grow and mature and that we can find comfort and hope and peace and love and all the things that you want, God, for us. I pray that we can find those things in you, Lord. God, bless my brothers and sisters till we meet again. Lord, help them to rest and relax and recharge before we get back to the craziness of this life. God, we love you. We pray all these things in your son's name, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.